Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking about neurodiversity and neurodivergence. What exactly are they? And why is neurodiversity something all organisations should be working to achieve? I have three experts in the field with me. Dr. Jill Miller, Public Policy Advisor, Diversity and Inclusion here at the CIPD. Kirsty Wilson, Lead International Job Coach at Auticom. And Margaret Malpass, Vice President of the British Dyslexia Association. Thanks for coming in, everyone. Shall we kick off with the obvious question, uh, what is neurodiversity? Kirsty. So neurodiversity is the spectrum that human beings think differently. Um, but within that umbrella of neurodiversity, there are a lot of conditions that we know about, like autism, ADD, ADHD. Um, and within those conditions, there are more prominent traits of alternative thinking. Okay. So this plays into how people think, communicate, organize themselves everything everything uh the way that they think the way they approach problems the way they approach their everyday life and routines and um, their social skills and a lot of the things that someone that doesn't have one of these conditions just take completely um for granted someone that's got one of those conditions it'll be a little bit more challenging so in terms of the workplace why then is it vital for employers to understand and appreciate it because if you do not understand the people that are working for you, how can you possibly get the best out of them? There have been many, many billions of pounds spent on management development training, um, which is completely redundant if we actually don't understand the people who are working for us. So it's crucial. Jill? I think when we talk about neurodiversity, um, people are literally thinking differently. So why would you not want a range of perspective and ideas? Um, but I think what happens in the workplace often is that we're not really embracing neurodiversity. And that's something that we really want to encourage employers to do. Shall we talk a bit about language and labels? Because the functional labels can be very tricky. I think... There are two issues about labels. I think the first is that they are very often useful to an individual who has struggled with um, not understanding why they think the way they do or they act the way they do. Okay. On the other hand, um, it is fairly critical that that label is accurate because that will often lead to the solutions, to coping strategies for them. So obviously if we get the label wrong, then they may not necessarily get the help that they need. But I guess there's a danger of negativity, isn't there? Because we talk about these things in terms of disorders. Yes, I, I personally obviously do not like that particular terminology, yeah. but it used to be used. Um, and I think it's very often produced when people have conditions that have medical treatments. But we're not talking about medical treatments in the main with these conditions. We're talking about people who just process information differently. And so it's much more helpful to think about difference than conditions. Okay, well, since this field I think will be new to everyone, can we, can we clear up some of the terminology yeah, I, mean, I was going to say even within the communities, I think labels is quite a controversial um, topic. And I mean the communities of, of those people that have a condition. So for autism, for example, some consultants or some people, sorry, would say um, that it's a disability because they are so challenged by their condition. But others would see it as a strength and it's not a, it's not a disability in any way whatsoever. It's a condition. Um, and finding the right terminology even within that community they don't agree either so it's very important I think that if you're speaking to someone and engaging with someone that has a condition you know how they like to call it and um, so that you're not causing offense and that you you get to understand them and their approaches too yeah because for HR professionals this is difficult territory isn't it they don't want to offend but they do want to understand so I'm wondering could we go through some of the I've, I've done a bit of research on this and come up with a string of words um, including things like neurodivergent should we start with that one what exactly does that mean it means that you diverge 
from what we consider to be the, the neurotypical way of thinking. It just means there is a divergence, it's a change. So the general run of people might be neurotypicals? Would that be a word we'd use? At Autocom we tend to not even um, use the word neurotypical because that then denotes there is a typical, there yes. is a norm, there is a normal. And yeah. we hire people that are autistic. So to, we're, if we use the word neurotypical, we're basically saying to them, everyone that's working with us that isn't autistic is normal and maybe you're not, which is absolutely not the case. And when you're thinking about the, the concept of neurodiversity being each individual person, whether they have a condition or not, thinks differently, that that word doesn't really make sense. So there, there isn't a, a, a kind of catch-all phrase, I don't think, that's fair. I mean, obviously, you have a lot of experience in this area. Do you want to tell us a bit about your organisation? Sure. So um, Autocon is a, an IT consultancy, first and foremost, but uh, our expertise is that we only hire IT consultants that are autistic. So um, when they apply for us, we just have three criteria, that they do have an autism diagnosis, um, they have a STEM degree because they'll be working in IT, and um, they have at least one year's work experience. But that one year's work experience doesn't even have to be within IT. Um, and we hire them and we pay them a full-time salary and then we place them into IT projects and tech projects um, for really large banks, large medical organisations, through to SMEs um, and then they work within that client organisation doing an IT project, using their skills, using their strengths and capabilities and they have support to help them in the workplace and navigate um, that, that traditional workplace at the same time. So that raises a whole load of issues I want to talk about and I think the first one is management. Um, because there are some differences there and some things to know. So I'm presuming, Jill, this is an area where we've seen problems. Well, I, th I think um, where sort of problems can start is really a lack of awareness or understanding about neurodiversity to start with. Um, and I think it's, it's really important, especially with line managers and other people who are recruiting into an organisation to start with, um, to give people some training, some basic understanding. Um, and that's... I suppose primarily and foremost so that we're not screening out really talented people who are coming for a job at our organisation who may have the skills and capabilities that we really want um, but for some reason in the hiring process they're not making it through um, to, to a job role. Maybe even before that as well and we speak to organisations about if you've put on a job spec that you need five years experience for someone that's autistic they might have four and a half years and they're incredible but they won't apply so you don't even see that talent but then you're in an interview process speaking to someone with three years that can just persuade you really well that they can do the job. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that that's a really good point because I think job descriptions, just of what people read about the job to start with, is so critical. Often I think the tendency is to write a really long wish list um, of wanting to recruit a generalist who could be good at everything, um, in which case if somebody with a deep level expertise that we really want reads that, they might screen themselves out because they can't tick every box. So one of the, the recommendations that, that we would make was, can you really think carefully about a job description? What what are the core skills there and even separate it into things like um, we must have those skills you must have and those skills that are nice to have. What about interviewing? I think um, interviews can traditionally be a test of how quickly you can recall things um, and also of social interaction and I think when we're thinking about any kind of screening or um, sort of recruitment processes People who are hiring need to be aware of neurodiversity um, to be able to take a moment of pause um, and reconsider their perhaps owning preconceptions or consider what's necessary for the role. The example I'll give here is if somebody maybe finds it difficult to keep eye contact. 
um, to ensure that if they have got the skills required that they're not screened out for something that might be completely irrelevant to the job role. One of the things that we find with dyslexia is that people think it's an issue to do with spelling and reading and it's not. Many, many dyslexics have problems with working memory and um, when you're in a stressed situation, which interviews are, then very often individuals' coping strategies go kaput. So one of the things we um, encourage is to make sure that questions are asked in the same order, that people are given them perhaps an hour in advance um, and so on and it is interesting for employers because there's case law here over this so in fact if employers don't abide with this kind of thing they are actually breaking the law and I think many of them just don't realise this and they're not trying to be difficult but they're just unaware of it. I think um, the the point you made there of giving the questions in advance I would say more than one hour even but there's a tendency to assume there's a tendency to assume that um, if you give them the questions in advance then they can plan too much and they you won't really be able to find out how well they are at doing the job. But so unfair advantage. Yeah, exactly. But really that isn't the case because ultimately you should be able to have a conversation with someone to learn more about their experiences and how they can apply that to the job, not to catch them out in something. And of course interviews are one of the worst ways of recruiting. It has the least consistency to actually what happens subsequently. Yeah, lots of data on that. Absolutely. So one of the things we really stress actually is providing a work sample test. Let the individual try out a piece of the work. You will see whether they can do it. And also they can self-select about whether they want to do it or not because many, many neurodiverse people are actually very well aware of their own profile, their own strengths, their own challenges and can choose, therefore, whether this job is going to suit them or it isn't going to. And recruitment should always be a matching process from both sides. I had a really interesting experience with Hampshire Police. Hampshire Police are probably the most advanced in dealing with um, candidates with dyslexia and related conditions in the UK. Um, and I first met Peter Phillips, who is their um, expert in this area, um, probably about 10 or 12 years ago when I was running an awareness course for um, Hampshire Police about dyslexia because they discovered that a lot of their um, recruits were actually having difficulty on their training programme and had not disclosed that they were dyslexic. What's been really interesting is to see the travel with that organisation because initially they were completely innocent of what these conditions might be and they were doing all those sort of things of writing you know, complicated job descriptions and not necessarily encouraging um, recruitment from people who might be um, on the spectrum. Um, now they have screening in place for all their recruits. It's voluntary, obviously. Um, but they say over the last five years they've helped 150 police officers and they've actually been able to calibrate what that has mean to victims of crime because those individuals as trained police officers are very often very empathetic and um, they have found that this has had a, a, you know, a serious business impact. It's a great example and you make a really good point. It's like all these diversity and inclusion conversations. It's not nice to have. It's good business sense, isn't it? You talked about reasonable adjustments and that's, that's a thing that I think is a barrier, isn't it, for a lot of HR professionals. They imagine there are going to be a lot of very complex, very expensive adjustments to make if they go down this road. What's the reality on the ground? I think it's, um, again, like we mentioned earlier, understanding um, that person and what they need. But you don't need to change the entire organisation, but just make sure there are options there for that person. So, for example, if you have an office where lots of the meeting rooms are glass all the way around, 
are there blinds there? So if someone there is in, in the room that has um, autism and everyone walking past is really distracting, they can't concentrate on what you're saying, they can just pull down the blinds and then they're, they're focusing. Um, but in, in reality, any adjustment that we provide uh, as um, a suggestion for our consultants to, to other companies and clients, they're so minimal. They're, they're really small, but they make a massive difference to someone's every day. Yeah, I pulled some data. I think it was your data, Jill, about the US Job Accommodation Network. They did a survey. 59% of common adjustment types cost nothing, which is a really good thing to know, isn't it? Because that's not the perception. I think most most reasonable adjustments um, are likely to be low cost um, and often they're universal. And by universal adjustments, we, we mean that um, they can benefit a huge range of people, uh, whether you're neurodivergent or not. And I think, as you say, Kirsty, that one of the real keys there is understand what's important for that individual and then to be creating that culture where anybody in the organisation can request a reasonable adjustment or a workplace adjustment. Um, and I think that's really important because if someone hasn't disclosed a condition and they might not want to, they can still request an adjustment then um, that will help them perform at their best when they're at work. That's true, actually. There's a bigger picture there of accepting when, when someone's within the team, for example, that they're autistic or they have a condition or even if you don't know they have, if they're requesting adjustments, that's just a normal thing. Like you're allowed to do that. And um, a lot of our consultants that are still getting used to, to their autism and how it impacts them, they're really fearful to ask other clients for adjustments because they don't want to stand out and they don't want to um, be, be shown as someone different that, that needs all these um, adjustments that somebody else might not. Thinking about people with these conditions, they bring talents and capacities to an organisation that other people don't. So it's about managing talent, isn't well, it? Well, to an extent, because there is certainly the case, and I've written a book about it, about you know the creative talents of people who are dyslexic and so on. On the other hand, this is a spectrum disorder, and many people are concerned that you can have someone who is just you know good at their job but not super talented and then if we raise that expectation this is always about talent management those who are more seriously affected have too high an expectation made of them okay so we have to be a little careful and i think it's just coming back to what we said at the beginning which is you've got to know the person you've got to understand what what their strengths are what perhaps some of their challenges are they may be very minor or they may not be, depending on the extent to which they're affected. How do you handle that, Kirsty? The talent management. Yeah. The talent obviously management. you've got a much bigger pool of people happily identifying as in this cohort than most other organisations. So. Yeah. So everybody that we place into um, a project, um, that's matched to their skill set completely. So it's all about using their strengths and knowing what their strengths are. Maybe their IT strengths in particular, but also their, their cognitive strengths and areas that just come hand in hand with their condition um, and when they are placed we're, we're keeping track of that alongside their their line manager in-house at Autocom but also their line manager in a in a client project because there there are certain things where you could um, or certain situations where they're doing their job but they're bored they're really bored because they're unchallenged and quite often sometimes they're, they're put into a client project and people they're still a little bit unwary they're still a little bit scared so they're giving them work thinking or oh, they're autistic and they might not be able to do this and that is not the case they can do often quite a lot more than someone that isn't autistic so the talent management sometimes um, has the flip side, whereas I think most of the time we assume that's to help somebody that maybe isn't performing, um, but to help managers actually ensure that they 
have the work that can help them perform at their best um, and more so than others. Training for line managers, Jill? Yeah, I think training for line managers is really, really important. It's something we've actually done at CIPD um, as well ourselves. Um, we've done training for our line managers and people who are involved in hiring, but then broaden that out to, to all employees who could come along to lunch and learn sessions. Now, Margaret, I think I think you delivered some of that training for the CIPD, didn't yeah, you? What, what did it involve? Very early on, actually, what we did was to provide um, an e-learning programme from the British Lecture Association so that employees could start to look at it, and it was used with recruiting staff and with managers at CIPD. So, Kirsty Autocon, I'm, I'm interested in your clients. So, do you... Do your clients come to you specifically because they want to play into this, it's important to them, or do they come to you because you're the best? The best, obviously. They <laughs> come for an IT consultant first. Um, quite often what we find with our clients, they have a skills gap, um, and then they're hearing a lot about neurodiversity and autistic IT consultants and the benefits that they have, and because we exclusively hire people that are autistic um, and, and IT consultants, that's why they, they come to us, because what they actually say is they're hearing all these good things and they have no idea where to find the people yeah. and find the talent so they come directly to us and um, when they do and when someone goes um, on board related to that training um, topic we always give a 90 minute training session um, to the team before we allow our consultant to go in there so that we have the chance to give the training raise awareness and correct all of the horrible misconceptions that are quite often there and have you had bad experiences no none is nothing. that right? Yeah, nothing at all. So you haven't had clients struggle with... They, um, there have been challenges, but they every single consultant that we hire comes with a coach. So when they join us, um, they have a dedita dedicated job coach to support them, but the clients get that coach basically as well because whenever anything comes up, maybe they're a little bit unsure about how to communicate or maybe there is a challenge with um, work pace, for example, or performance, they, they come to the coach and the in-house line manager or autocon to ask for advice and then we sort it out with them. I mean, as Kirsty says, people don't know where to go to recruit people with these particular talents and abilities, even if they directly want to recruit them. So how do you, as an HR professional, set about making your organisation very open to that so that I imagine people will come to you? Because we talked about this still in the diversity and inclusion arena and all sorts of other things, LGBTQ and um, BAME issues and you know, all sorts. And how do you actually make yourself as an organisation appealing in a genuine way in the sense you're going to deliver on your promises I, th I think there's some really subtle things you can do that, that actually can speak volumes and um, one of the things I'm thinking of is on your job adverts um, just like many organizations now put happy to talk flexible working why not put happy to talk workplace adjustments or reasonable adjustments whichever is, is most suitable yeah I mean has anyone ever seen that on an ad I don't think I have Okay, good thought. But, but also, I think it's making the actual working experience for people um, live your, your values. So if, if you really want to be an inclusive organisation, you have to make sure that that is what you're, you're breeding internally. Um, you need to make sure that people are aware of neurodiversity. You need to look at your people practices. You need to look at the whole employee life cycle to make sure that you're not screening people out. Other thoughts on becoming a destination employer? I think one of the things we found that's been really helpful has been having internal networks in organisations. So, you know, like you get a women's network, you get a black and ethnic minorities network. There were very, well, in fact, there were no dyslexic networks until about 12 years ago. 
Um, and the British Sexual Association has really pushed on this and has provided a guide for how to set up internal networks, a guide for mentoring, all of which are free, by the way, so downloadable from the website. They presumably, Kirsty, networks don't work for everyone. Yeah, for people that are autistic, they probably wouldn't go. <laughs> but um, I think knowing that something or more so someone is there is quite crucial um that's why i think a lot of the time challenges are quite low when we are placing people because they have the support of a job coach um if there was nobody they would be trying to navigate it and not really unsure of what's going on probably get it wrong and make mistakes but when they've got that person they can trust and speak to whether that's a coach a mentor a line manager in particular um, that that works really well so we've talked about you know making reasonable adjustments, people working easily within ordinary office environments, not necessarily places like the wonderful Autocom where it's all set up for exactly this purpose, but mainstream organisations. Now, I know, Margaret, you've got an issue that's popping up a lot, but it's a problem. Yes, it's about being able to have assistive software on the general system for an organisation, their general platform. And the, the problem seems to be about um, uh, making sure that that system is safe. So they're concerned about viruses being introduced or something similar to this. and so Understandably, yeah. Absolutely understandably. But I think it's a challenge at the moment that we're seeing quite a lot of. And it's quite interesting because if you take the most secure organisation, GCHQ, then they have a long history of employing individuals with dyslexia because of some of their um, abilities, in some cases, to, to uh, visualise in 3D, and also of autistic individuals because of their attention to detail. And they have managed it. So there must be solutions to this, but we know it's something that IT departments who perhaps are less aware of neurodiversity are actually throwing up and saying, no, you can't use your assistive software here because it may introduce a risk into our IT structures. Interesting. Mm. We need to wrap this up, but before we do, I did just want to ask you all, and obviously this is, this is new territory for a lot of people, even for HR practitioners. Um, it seems to me that awareness is on the rise, and I've come across some great examples, certainly in Jill's research work. Do you have others that you'd like to share? The accounting companies have done quite well, Ernst & Young, uh, KPMG and so on, um, but mainly relating to their accountancy trainees who are going to do exams, and we've worked um, extensively with exam bodies, professional exam bodies, to make sure reasonable adjustments are put into place. The other interesting area is trade unions. Trade unions are doing a lot of work. Prospect Trade Union, for example, which deals with white-collar workers, um, has um, put neurodiversity in the forefront of its strategy for the whole of the trade union. Uh, TSSA, which deals with Crossrail and so on, are very well informed and are doing good work in that area. So there's some you know, really good examples out there of, of what to do. I came across a lovely one in Florida, Rising Tide. I think I found it in CIPD's data on this somewhere, car wash brand in the States that um, primarily hires autistic people. I kind of they've got about 80, I think, now. And that seems to be going extremely well for them. And they are kind of radically changing their whole way of hiring off the back of the experience, all the things we've been talking about, I think. So it's coming, isn't it? But there's not that many examples right now. Well, I saw a great example um, on the BBC website. Um, and I think 
the example takes the conversation past just your employees or your job applicants um, to looking at customers or clients as well. Um, I was looking at their Media City tours and they have a fabulous video on there um, which gives you an insight into all the sounds, the sights and the experience you'll have when you go on the tour and it's interactive so you can um, click on the sound link to see for example what it's going to be like when you enter the car park before you even get to reception for the tour. Now that is and yes, yes. So that I think that was that was a really powerful thing for me to think. Actually, we need to think about our customers as well, because if we're thinking about a significant proportion of the population who are neurodivergent, um, it makes clear business sense as, lo- as well as the right thing to do to to be making our workplaces neurodiverse friendly. So more information for people who are listening to this and would like to find out more. Jill, there must be stuff on the uh, CIBD site. Yes, well, at um, CIPD, we worked with Optimize to produce a, a guide for people managers and for, and for HR managers um, on neurodiversity at work. And it has um, two main things, uh, two main aims of the, the guide. The first is to increase awareness and understanding. Um, so it's for, for people who are very new to the, to the area. Um, but also it provides some practical examples of things that you might like to do as an employer to make your organisation more neurodiversity friendly. Thank you, everyone. It was a really great discussion. Dr. Jill Miller, Kirsty Wilson and Margaret Malpass. Thanks for listening. Join us again next month. <laughs>